Hi, this is Leslie Jane Seymour, and this is CoveyCast number one. I'm really excited about bringing this to you. This is our sort of extension of the Covey Club, and it is a chance for us to bring all these conversations with wise women who are living the best times of their lives, which is now, to you in real time and hearing their voices and hearing their stories. And I hope that you will be inspired. What's wonderful is you can download these podcasts for free at iTunes or at Podbean. And you can listen when you want to. So many of you have told me that during your busy lives, your eyes are taken, but your ears are open. So my plan is to fill them with inspirational stories from women like you and like me who are doing amazing things at this time in their lives, who do not feel like they are done. And it's just another extension of the way that we interact with the world and we keep going. You can search the CoveyCast on iTunes or Podbeam.com. And then I would love to hear from you about how you like the show. So you can go to at the Covey Club on Twitter. It's the Covey Club on Twitter just for that reason. Or Covey Club on Facebook and put in your thoughts. I will put up a starter for you all. And of course, sign up for the entire Covey Club at CoveyClub.com, which will have a weekly digizine and club, which comes with all the events we're doing and the podcasts. So now I want to talk to you about Eva Dillon, who we just had a wonderful conversation with this morning. And Eva is a very old friend of mine. We got to know each other when we worked at Glamour Magazine. She was on the sales side. And I was a writer. I was the beauty editor at Glamour. Who knew that she was going to write this really important book, which is called Spies in the Family, out by HarperCollins. And she had shown me her plan uh, about it when she discovered all these um, things about her dad, who had passed away when she was 17 years old. But she was packing up her house when uh, her mom passed away. And they found all this interesting stuff. And so many of us have done that same thing where you're digging around in all this stuff your parents have left you, and lo and behold, she finds out that her dad, who she thought worked for the State Department, was actually a CIA agent. What's amazing is this story is about how Eva's dad worked with a spy from Russia to keep the Cold War from going hot. And what's even more amazing is her book just came out a few weeks ago, right in the middle of all these discussions about Russia and the U.S. and our connections and the intelligence services and what we think of them and how they keep us safe or don't keep us safe. There's a lot of controversy. Anyway, her father obviously is a hero. So is the father of the young man who she worked with on this story. So Eva worked at Vogue and Glamour, the New Yorker. She was the president of Reader's Digest, and she and her six siblings grew up moving all over the world for her father's CIA assignments from Berlin to Mexico City to Rome to New Delhi. I can relate. My dad was in the Navy, and we moved all over the place, too. But she now lives in Charleston, South Carolina, and she has a bachelor's in music from Virginia Commonwealth University. You will love this discussion about a daughter finding out a whole new side of her dad when he has passed away and she is now an adult. And here we go. We're welcoming in my good friend Eva Dillon today. Hi Eva. 
Hey, Leslie, how are you? Good. I am so excited to talk about your new book and your reinvention as a writer. I can't even tell you. It's just wonderful. And Eva has this wonderful nonfiction book, which just launched a couple of weeks ago by HarperCollins. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about spies in the family. Did you know? <laughs> talk about the origins of the book to start with. Uh, uh, well, uh, it's it called Spies in the Family, as you said, and it's about my father, a CIA officer, which we did not know growing up, and, and the fact that he handled the highest-ranking, longest-serving Soviet double agent the U.S. had during the Cold War. So, did you not um, know he was with the CIA when you grew up? No, we didn't know he was wow. with the CIA. You know, uh, he told us all his uh, all those years that he worked with the State Department. He was a Foreign Service officer, and uh, and you know, so you know, and it made sense to us. He, you know, we moved around the world, and he dealt with a lot of uh, you know foreign people and world affairs, and so. You know, and when we found out that uh, he handled the highest-ranking, longest-serving double Soviet double agent that the U.S. had during the Cold War, you know, it was quite a revelation. And so the book is um, is actually it's a double memoir of our family and the Russians' family growing up on opposite sides of the, uh, of the Iron Curtain. So can you talk about how you found out, and then how you tracked down the other family as well? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, when I discovered the relationship that my father had with the Cold War's highest-ranking, longest-serving asset, I wanted primarily to honor General Dmitry Polyakov um, and, and his service to our country. But more emotionally, the, the more emotionally uh, motivating factor for me was when I learned that Polyakov's son had immigrated to the United States and was willing to share his stories with me. And exclusively gaining access to his son, you know, the son's memories of his father's account of growing up, un also unknowingly as the father of a spy, and comparing that experience with my own, you know, it, is, it inspired me to tell this incredibly fascinating Cold War story, but through the intimate and personal lens of the two families. I really wanted to tell the human interest version of this story, mm -hmm. how, how, you know, how geopolitical events between governments affect real people and their families in profound ways. So how did you discover it? So just let's talk a little bit about your history. You grew up overseas, so just talk a little bit about your family and what it was like growing up with your dad, and then how you actually, how did you come to discover that he was, he was not just working for the State Department? Sure. You know, we, uh, we moved all around the world. We were mostly all of us born in uh, Berlin, and then we moved to Mexico City and Rome and India. And, uh, you know, we were a very close family. Uh, there were, you know, there were seven kids. and Seven because we were, kids. Yeah, wow. Seven, and where seven. do you sit in that group? I'm, I'm the third oldest. And, okay. uh, so, you know, and I think because we moved around the world as much as we did, uh, you know, being uprooted and whatnot, we sort of used each other as our good friends. And as a result, we've been close, you know, all these years later. And, um and so, when did you come to the States then? Well, in, at various points. We came to the States after Berlin, then we went to Mexico, then we went to Rome, then we came back to the States after so Rome. So you then we bounced went, around. Okay. Yeah, we, we bounced around a lot, you know, and each place you needed to make new friends and, and whatnot, and, and that was kind of great sort of having 
you know, immediate friends among each other, you know, until such time that we could make new friends, you know, so that was kind of cool. Right. And, and, talk, um, and talk a little bit about how you ended up in publishing, which is how you and I got to know each other. And it's funny because, you know, my dad was in the Navy and we moved every, you know, two or three years as a kid. And that was one of the motivating factors for me to, to be so friendly and outreaching to all different types of people. Absolutely. And it definitely affects you because, you know, in, in those days too, I don't know if this was true with your dad, but they would pick you up. I remember being pulled off the, uh, the, I was supposed to do a recital in Bataan and my parents, you know, I couldn't do the closing act because we had to go to St. Louis, <laughs> you know, unheard of today. Did, did your parents do that to you or were they like letting you finish your school and, and then well, go? Uh, for my poor mother and, and, and looking back on it now, I, I feel so sorry for her. My father would get his new assignment, you know, all of a sudden he'd be off to India and, you know, my mother would, ha would, you know, they would wait and let us finish out the school year. Sometimes it was a month, sometimes it was three months. And then my mother would pack up, you know, an, an entire house of seven children and follow behind, you know. So, oh, my God, seven you know, kids. I know, it, it's unbelievable what my mother went through. And it's one of those things that you don't appreciate when you're a child. You just That's think this right. is the way it is. And you grow up and I look back on it now and I think, oh, my God, my mother was a... Wonder Woman, like like today's movie. That that's her. <laughs> wow, seven kids moving them around the world. Did she did she have a job as well, or was she just nope, you, you she guys was, were nope. her job? We were her job. We were, she was you know oh my goodness for her to have, have do anything. I mean I take that back a little bit uh, because I later did find out that um, especially in the earlier years when she only had a few kids. A lot of the CIA wives would go into the embassy and do secretarial work or phone work or that sort of thing. And uh, so she did do that. I, I, we didn't know it at the time, but she would go in and, and sometimes answer phones and, and direct calls. And the only other job that I ever heard of, which was a one-day job, was when my father once asked her to deliver a package to an asset. Um, oh my God! She was part of it. Incredible. She, she, she was yeah. part of it, and and she it was one of the few things she told us after my father passed away. She never wanted to talk about anything. She was the typical CIA wife who kept everything close to the vest. But she told us that my dad once asked her to deliver a package in a lonely, dark Berlin park because uh, in really, Berlin, nonetheless, in, in, in Berlin, and she did it, and she came back, and she told him, "I will never do that again." She was so nervous. Uh, she said, I'll never do that again. And I guess he never asked her to do that again. So that was good. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Oh, my God. Who, who could? I mean, but again, my mom was Wonder Woman, but she did put her foot down. That's for sure. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So you grew up all over the place and then um, you got into publishing. And how did you end up in publishing, Eva? Well, it's, it was funny because uh, I went to school and majored in music, of all things. Oh, and about, okay. Yeah. And about halfway through my music degree, I said to myself, you know, Eva, you're not really all that talented in music, and you're really not going to want to do anything with music when you get out, which was true. But I finished it up, and when I got out, I was a little bit at odds because, you know, I had this music degree. And I ended up getting an, a sort of an administrative job at the National Geographic because I was living in D.C., and um, I was just sort of became enthralled with magazines while I was there. You know, what cooler magazine than National Geographic, right? Absolutely. And I would see, I would, 
I'd see everybody running around just doing all these interesting things. And I said to myself, I want a career in magazines. Okay. And at some point, I got myself, uh, I, but, and, and people kept saying, if you really want to be in magazines, you got to move to New York. That's where it all happens. And I drove myself up to New York, and I stayed with a friend in her little apartment uh, and beat down doors for a couple weeks, and somebody hired me at Adweek. That was my first job at Adweek as a salesperson, and I went from there. Loved it. Incredible. Okay, and you and I then, I guess we crossed paths at Glamour. Mm -hmm. That was our spot. And then you went on to Reader's Digest after that? Uh, after Glamour, I became the uh, publisher of the new launch uh, at Connie and Ask called Cookie. The, oh, right. That's right. 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 Cookie. The, the, people loved Cookie. I'm sure a lot cookie. of my the, members loved Cookie and were absolutely. horrified when it went out of business. Yes. It was It was um, an upscale parenting magazine. You know, you, yes. had all the, you had all those other magazines out there that for parents, but they, but they were very mass, very broad, and we launched Correct. this you know, uh, uh, upscale, and people loved it. And it really was probably one of my uh, favorite jobs in my entire yeah. career. And, and it was, you know, I launched it, so, you know, I'll use the cliched line, it was my baby. You know, it really did feel that way. But then eventually uh, I went over to Reader's Digest and became president uh, of the U.S. Division of Reader's Digest and uh, did that for a few years. That was my final job in magazine uh, publishing before I finally retired. So then talk about how you decided to end up doing this book. Were you cleaning something out? Did you discover something new about your dad? How did you, how did you stumble across this and decide you're not a writer by profession? So how did that, that's true. How did that happen? And yet I'm telling you, it's so beautifully written. So we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Thank you. Um, well, throughout most of my life when, you know, I, I, I did not find out my father was in the CIA until I was 17 years old. We were living in New Delhi at the time, and a newspaper article came out that identified my father as a CIA officer. You know, and we we were always like, "Huh." We thought he was with the State Department, and mm -hmm. uh, and um, but you know, uh, you know, I was 17. I wasn't going to write a book. You know, when I was 17, that was just right. the revel re revelation. And my father died actually a, 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 just a few years after that. He died very young. Oh. Uh, and and uh, and then uh, many years later, when I was about forty and working at uh, Condé Nast, my mother died seventeen years after my father, and so we were in our house, you know, figuring out who was going to take what and whatnot, and sitting around the dining room table talking about how to sell the house. And my husband brought down this box that he found up in the attic that was kind of tucked away in a corner, and he's flipping through the, some papers that are in their box, and he pulls out a magazine. And he's reading the magazine and he turns to us and he says, you know, when you guys were in India, did you ever have any fancy shotguns? And one of my brothers says, oh, yeah, dad had these fancy shotguns and went hunting. He'd never been a hunter before. It was kind of odd. And my husband says, you know, and did he ever go fishing along the Yamuna River? And they're like, yeah, he went on all these fishing trips. And then he goes, your dad's name is in this article. He handled this high-level generals, uh, a Soviet double agent, and I, I, I immediately went, said, you know, what? And I took the article, and I'm reading all about this. And it was this huge revelation about, you know, the, the uh, extent and importance of my uh, father's job. We just really didn't know anything before that about what he did. 
So yet again, I put the information aside because I'm in the middle of this big career at Connie Nast. You know, you, you remember we would work from seven uh, in the morning till ten at night. You know, uh, I mean, you, you yeah, didn't have a eighty-hour weeks, yes. eighty-hour weeks at least, right? You know, uh, very curious. But when I retired, it just you know came upon me. I said I really need to do something with this information, and mostly because I was very curious about the Russian general. I looked and looked all over the place and found very little, there never had been a book written about him, and, and yet here he was, the highest ranking Soviet to ever serve our country, and, and, and you know, there's no major story told about him. So as a, as a good, uh, you know, most of my career in magazines, unlike yours, was on the sales side, you know, sales and marketing, and we were trained to get out there and find the information. Uh-huh. And I... Aha, uh-huh. and I, I used those skills and my organizational skills, and I went and interviewed uh, more than 18 of my father's former colleagues and other uh, um, intelligence professionals like the CIA, excuse me, the FBI, and, and, and all kinds of people, and eventually found out that the um, son of the general had immigrated to the United States and was here in the country. And when I approached him, he was completely willing to tell me his entire story growing up in the Soviet Union as, you know, the child of a spy, just like I had on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And and he had all these memories about his father. And, you know, eventually I just did all this research. And I said, someone needs to tell this story. And as I went about interviewing all the CIA uh, personnel that I found, uh, they all said, oh, my God, we wish someone would write a, a book about Polyakov because he's so important. And and one of the reasons why a book never had been written uh, before uh, about him before, because many books have been written about these famous spies during the Cold War, but he hadn't. One hadn't been written about him, and the reason is because these kinds of books about Cold War spies are usually written by uh, journalists or um, historians. But right. they but they wait until they have found you know uh, a, a new source of of newly class declassified information. That's what uh-huh. they do, you know. And okay. um, and Polyakov's case remains classified, and so I came at it really differently. You know, I went and found all this information that that was open source, but it was scattered all over the place. You know, articles here, newspaper, magazine, you know, uh, articles here and there you know, media from the Soviet Union, and I, I found it all, and I translated it, and I organized it, and I did all my interviews, and I had this mountain of material on Polyakov, but, uh, but you know, I didn't want to write the book that a journalist or a historian would and should write someday. I wanted to write the book by a daughter with the help of a son uh, and tell a story in, a, in all of its newsworthy, but in its human ways, in its human aspect ways. That was my goal. Interesting. So you were the perfect person to do it. I think so. I think very few people, you know, could have. I think I was lucky in that, you know, I was the daughter uh, of one of the two main protagonists in the book. I had access to the son, exclusive access to the son of the general who was willing to share his memories. And I had the experience the background and experience, uh, well, the background and experience, and here's another funny story that, that you will relate to, you being a writer yourself, uh, the background and experience to organize it and to uh, write up a proposal about this idea I, has, I had. I said, you know, I've got this great story. It's a story. I remember story. the proposal. I remember yes, when you were yes. talking about that. We talked yes. about it. 
I brought it by and I, ta- I yeah. told you all about it. And uh, so I knew how to do that, having a, a career in, in sales and marketing, you know. And I wrote up this killer proposal and uh, I found an agent and the agent said, wow, this is a great story idea. And she took it out to a bunch of publishers and we went to see about 12 publishers, eight of which were going to auction before Harper, Harper Collins um, stood up and took the proposal off the table uh, and kept it for, the, for their own. And gave me a contract and gave me a year to write it. And then I sat down and went, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to write this thing? You know, I'm not right. a writer. I don't know how to write. And, you know, I think this is part of what you and your audience may be interested in. That yes. you, know, you, you, you do reinvent yourself and you do discover things about yourself years later you know I had this uh, built-in mechanical idea of what my strengths and weaknesses were and when I challenged it I found that that there was more behind the the scenes you know now you mentioned you hired a writing coach what does that mean there are an awful lot of members of Covey Club who want to write something you know they have stories to tell like you maybe not as dramatic but you know or maybe on a smaller scale they would like to take their inner thoughts and put them out there Writing is a talent, it's very hard, and you decided to get a coach instead of having someone write it for you. So can you explain what that is? Sure. Um, my, when, when I said that, uh-oh, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, I had my first initial bout of insecurity, and I went to my editor and I said, I think I need a, uh, you know, a ghostwriter. I was kind of in a right. panic. I, I need somebody. And they said, no, you don't. We've seen your writing, and you have a good base of knowledge of how to write but you probably need a writing coach that will help you when you when you hit your roadblocks and I said okay let me try that so we we found a writing coach and it was really wonderful because from the very beginning I kind of stared at a blank page and I was intimidated right. by it but the coach could say could sort of interview me a little bit and say okay you know how you how do you think you want to start this story and I kind of talked it through with him and he goes okay Write that out right now, you know, uh, and write and you know, uh, lay it out, just sort of what you just told me. And so I did. And then he would sort of coach me and say, okay, from here, you know, you'd probably want to go in this direction. And I'd say, okay, well, what about that direction? And what he did was really helped me shape the book uh, mm-hmm. more, more than mm-hmm. write it. And sometimes he would, you know, critique my writing, and that mm-hmm. was very, very helpful. And, uh, and, and whatnot, but in, in many ways also he was a sounding board. I mean, I think, mm. I think we women sometimes uh, wear our insecurities on our sleeves and not necessarily just for, to, to talk about them, but because they are a way that we process our own strengths and weaknesses, you know? So mm. I would say, oh, but I don't think I can do this now because look, you know, we've hit this roadblock and he'd say, well, if you look at it this way, because he has all the experience, you know, he'd written right. a lot of books himself, you know, and it was so helpful to have a sounding board to help you, me. How do Go you ahead. find a writing coach, Eva? Do you just look up writing coach <laughs> on the <laughs> web? Uh, in in my case, uh, I was lucky. My editor, you know, had a list of them and helped me. Um, but I think that they're not hard to find. I think you can Google writing coaches. I think you okay. can go on your own. I think you can go on your own local Craigslist and and you know, um, because there are so many many talented writers out there. 
that but but so many of them find it hard to get published you know it's very hard to get anything That's published right. and so there are it's many really of hard. them it's very hard very hard to to be published and so there are a lot of them out there who need the work you know so yes. you know and i th i think also if if anybody has a friend of a friend of a friend at a publishing company and could say, hey, do you know of a writing coach? There are so many of them out there looking for work. I think somebody would say, oh, my God, my good friend is sitting there idle and would love to do. You know, so you know, th there are ways to find them, and they are plentiful. So what would you say your father's experiences with the Russians taught you about the current situation between the United States and Russia? Of course, you had no idea when you were writing this book that it was going to be so timely when it came oh out. God. Who knew? Oh. Were you shocked? Um, you know, it was the, this new Cold War 2.0, as some people are calling it, you know, had, had been, you know, rumbling out there for a while. But certainly, I mean, I... I do not wish a new Cold War on our world, but if one is going to come along anyway, I guess the time is pretty good <laughs> for my mm -hmm. book. Um, mm. But, but you know, uh, my father's experiences with the Russians, uh, you know, the, the way I feel about it today is that, and, and what I've learned is that history repeats itself, that's for sure. Mm. I mean, there are so many parallels, you know, going on now compared to what is written about in my book. Um, you know, the big ones, you know, Russia's incursions into Crimea and Ukraine, the buildup of NATO forces in the Balkans, the increased threat of nuclear weapons, those are the, the big things that are, you know, so similar to the, you know, the earlier Cold War. But, but more specifically, you know, a Cold War, any war, I guess, you know, breeds paranoia. And today, mm. the atmosphere of suspicion, leaks, and betrayals that surround the congressional intelligence investigations into whether Russia colluded with the Trump administration, you know, parallel the paranoia within the CIA in the 60s and the 70s, of which I wrote, of a mole within their ranks, which resulted in a, in a witch hunt, much like now. But, you know, what I learned researching my father and his relationship with his Russian counterpart in espionage is that the most important thing between an asset and a handler is trust. And my father, he just engendered trust in everyone he, he knew because he saw the dignity in all people. And people felt that from him. You know, he attended a Jesuit high school and a Jesuit and Jesuit Boston College and was influenced, I believe, by the Jesuits' vow of poverty, which can be interpreted as a poverty of self, that you are not better than any other person. So, you know, he trusted you and you trusted him. Certainly, there's not a lot of trust in Washington, D.C. today, you know. So things right. are, th things are, you know, if, if I learned anything, it's that people need to sort of learn to open up and, and, and learn how to build trust. So just for our listeners, so that they can be clear, your dad was assigned to cultivate a Russian agent who then flipped over and was actually helping the United States as well, so that, and putting his life at risk for that. Exactly. So exactly. that he would, so that the Cold War between the United States and Russia would never get hot in terms of actually having a war. Exactly. That, that, that was the... That was the goal of all of the hand, all of the case officers, like my father. Uh, you know, their jobs were to, you know, identify and cultivate assets. People uh, on the other side who would talk to them and say and tell them what's really going on over there, just like they did that with us. You know, they would come to us and either in open diplomatic channels, you know, through the State Department or in undercover 
uh, channels with the CIA. And if you were able to get somebody to tell you stuff undercover, then they, you know, then they were a spy. You know, there was a big difference, you know, between the and, two. And didn't he eventually, Polyakov, am I saying that right? Yes, uh-huh, Polyakov. Did, uh-huh. did he, he eventually got found out on the Soviet side? Yes, yes. Basically what happened is he, he originally volunteered himself in uh, 1961 to the FBI. Uh, this was earlier than my father. And uh, because he just, um, he was... He, he was nervous about what he saw happening between the United States and Russia and the development of all these nuclear weapons. And he didn't trust uh, Nikita Khrushchev. He thought he was this uncouth bore who was you know, prone to emotional bur- uh, bursts of uh, emotion and that he might do something drastic you know, and, and maybe tip off a nuclear war. And he wanted to talk to the Americans and give them an insight into the Soviet leadership's thinking and intentions. And one of the most important things he did was actually reveal, eventually in the 1970s after Khrushchev, reveal to the Americans that the Soviets didn't believe that they could win in a nuclear confrontation with the United States. And that allowed the uh, Americans, what it meant was that the Soviets couldn't really intimi- intimidate the Americans uh, and their allies, and it really diffused tensions. Mm. And, uh, and, and a lot of people say that the information that Polyakov gave uh, you know, kept the Cold War from, from becoming hot. And then uh, eventually uh, my father started handling him when we moved to India. That's why we moved to India because the GRU, he worked for the GRU, which is the uh, military intelligence arm of intelligence. And um, he moved to New Delhi, and so we followed there. We didn't know why. My father, of course, knew he was uh, going to work with him. And uh, at that point, when we moved to uh, India, uh, uh, Polyakov was promoted to a general level, which was mm-hmm. huge because the level of information he then had to offer you know, corresponded to his new um, designation as a general. And my father worked with him for a long time. But then my father became ill while we were in New Delhi. He had a hereditary lung disease that when, oh. it, got di- when it got diagnosed, it was fatal. And they knew he wouldn't live oh. very long. Primary pulmonary hypertension. And at the time, it was a little-known disease. And, um, you know, it was fatal. And you would, you would die within a few years. Your capillaries mm. shrink. And you really just can't breathe anymore. So mm. he, he had to leave and come back to the States, and we all left and came back to the States, and he died shortly thereafter. Um, but uh, Polyakov was still working. He had a new handler. But in 1985, uh, a very famous, now very famous mole working uh, in, at the CIA started uh, selling secrets to the KGB. Um, ah. and. And, yeah, and uh, you know he was in a very sensitive position and was in a position to know of the identities of all the assets that were working for the United States, the Russian assets working for the United States, and he sold those identities for a lot of money to the KGB, including Dmitry Polyakov's identity. And so Polyakov was arrested, and in my book, uh, the part of the book that it is so poignant really is what happens to the Polyakov family at that point. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, he's arrested, he's in jail, the, the sons, the wife, you know, their life is ruined. They become, you know, the family of a traitor, they lose their jobs, wow. they lose everything. And uh, 
and then eventually uh, Polyakov is executed. And and probably one of the more heartfelt and and maybe you know you, you feel good in your heart for our own country is that uh, the United States helped get the um, the sons out of the Soviet Union because their life was so bad, you know. And helped, uh-huh. re- and helped resettle them here, which is why they were here and why, you know, uh, Alexander, the son, was able to tell me his, his story. And so th- th- there's a lot of heartfelt, uh, you know, uh, part, part, parts to this story that, it, that is unusual in a spy thriller. And that was totally. Really, yes. And the parallels with your two families is exactly, so incredible. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Are you guys close now? Are you? Are you? Have you become friends? Yes, yes. I've become very good imagine. friends with yeah, very good friends, especially with Alexander. You know, after I spent you know weeks with him, you know, hours. You know, I would go up and spend three days all day long recording, and then come back and just, uh, transcribe those tapes, and come back another three wow. weeks later. You know, on and on and on. So we became very close, and he's a wonderful, wonderful person. And how did the book and all that you learned and that you learned from Polyakov's son and everything. How did that change your point of view on your dad? I mean, was there any, how did you view him as a kid? And then how did you view him as an adult looking at him through this lens of what you discovered? Um, you know, I guess, you know, as a kid, he was just an ordinary dad. He was this warm, trusting he had a preternatural sense of trustworthiness. He was wonderful. And even though he was a CIA spy, we didn't know it. He would come home from work uh, every day uh, for dinner, and he was warm and close and a wonderful dad. And, you know, when we found out he was at, uh, with the CIA, nothing really changed. We didn't, uh, we didn't, uh, interestingly, we were probably very different from other families who might have said, whoa, wait a minute, you know, is this true? You know, tell us all about it. How could you have never told us? We were very different. We immediately recognized that my father couldn't talk to us about this. He wasn't all of a sudden going to start telling us, you know, what he was doing at work every day, right? And so mm-hmm. we simply didn't ask him. It, it was, we all went about our lives as though there was really nothing different. Nobody wanted to upset the apple cart. We just kind of loved and respected him too much to put him in an uncomfortable position. Mm. Today, and then he died, you know, I found out when I was 17, he died five years later. Um, today, wow. you know, I look back at, uh, uh, you know, at it, and I've learned so much in having written this book about what they went through and the dangers they went through and, and what they were trying to do in protecting our country and, uh, you know, serving our country, and I just feel a lot of pride. I mean, I think especially these, yeah, especially these days with there's a lot of question as to whether today's administration, you know, how much value they see in the intelligence, um, you know, organizations that we have. I certainly uh, believe that the goal of intelligence organizations, you know, is to protect our country and. You know, as a result of that, I'm very proud of what my father did for this country, and and those are are very good memories for me, given how many years I lived without my father as an adult. And uh, so knowing that, you know, he had this important role in an intelligence organization is a a very wonderful memory for me. And so you had no idea your dad was actually a hero. 
<laughs> yeah, that's uh, an interesting way to look at it. Uh, you know, I, I honestly think the hero in the story was Polyakov, and my okay. father and my father's role was to allow Polyakov to be a hero. So, in a sense, I suppose. I'm very proud of my father, you know, in that role of helping Polyakov, you know, avoid nuclear war. And I suppose together, the two of them, yeah, I suppose to the te- together, the, the two of them did play a, a heroic role for our country. So one last question. When you were young and you were saying, I want to do music or I want to do magazines or whatever, and you could never envision yourself now going out and giving talks at the State Department like you recently did. What do you say to women who are saying, you know, I need to do something else, I want to be something else, but I've just been the this or I've just been that and I can't be something else that I never dreamed of? Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, you know, during my career, I saw writers as these mythical creatures that had skills far beyond my technical or creative abilities. Truly, I did. You know, and that's why I was so unsure of myself at the beginning of the writing process for the book. But I guess it's like anything, you know, being terrified of a roller coaster until you've done it a couple of times and then you realize it's not so scary. Um, and you know, I don't want to sound cliched, but I found that it's true that you, you can't be afraid to try something new. And, and to know that failure is very much part of the learning process. I rewrote the beginning of this book three times before I got the you tone. Did. The, yes. Because Good. I start, yeah, okay. I started it and as I went, I learned. And then I said, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm learning this, the tone and the style. And, and you know, I, to, your, your, to your question about, you know, uh, do I have advice or anything for older women? It's funny, you know, I always expected to be an inspiration for younger women and try to help younger women find their way into adulthood or in developing their careers. But if I've become an inspiration for older women in any way, I'm even a little more proud of that. You know, I've learned that old dogs can learn new tricks. And I'm proud to be 60 now, um, 56 when I started, and to have produced something that so many people can enjoy or be moved by and learn from. And maybe someone like me will be inspired to try something challenging, and that would make me really happy. Awesome. And as speaking as another old dog, <laughs> um, I am so happy to speak to you, Eva, and we can't wait to see what's next. And Spies in the Family should be on everybody's reading list. And I want to see what's coming next. we got to have Spies in the Family too, right? <laughs> First, I want a couple months of playing tennis. I'm, I, I miss my, I, my tennis game, my, my daily okay. tennis games, and, and, and the ability to read other books. Um, and okay. then we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens after that. But, uh, but Leslie, this has been fantastic. You've always been the best. And I I'm just so excited about the Covey Club. And um, I really appreciate you talking to me and me being able to talk to all of your listeners and members. Great. And maybe we'll even get you into a spot where we can all talk to you live. So thank you, Eva. And we'll see you later. Thanks, Leslie. Thank you, Eva. That was such a great interview. And here's a surprise that Eva has come up with. The first five people to email us and me at leslie at coveyclub.com and it's l-e-s-l-e-y at coveyclub.com 
will get a personally signed copy of Spies in the Family from Eva. So be sure to leave me the spelling of your full name so Eva can write it out to you personally. I hope that you will subscribe to CoveyClub.com and become a member of our flock, as we call it. Covey is a small group of birds. And if you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the CoveyCast on iTunes or Podbean.com. And if you enjoyed this first episode of the CoveyCast, please pass it around to your friends. Have them download also. And we'll see you next time.